Amen. All right. Habakkuk 1, uh, 12, we'll go into uh, chapter 2, verse 4. God's Word says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Reminder, this is now Habakkuk crying out to the Lord. We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I'll look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, hear this, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits, it is appointed time, it hastens to the end. It will not lie, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the word of the Lord. One of the reasons I am confident that the Bible is the authoritative word of God is because it includes raw and intimate and sometimes embarrassing details of of key spiritual figures such as we find here in Habakkuk who's kind of just laying bare his feelings before the Lord. Habakkuk moves from one perplexing question. Last week we looked at the beginning uh, chapter, chapter 1 of Habakkuk. The situation, if you'll recall, uh, Habakkuk is lamenting uh, what's going on among God's people in the southern kingdom, it's Judah, and the injustice and strife that's going on among God's people. And he cries out to God to work. He cries out to God, how long are you going to allow this to go on? And God answers that he's going to solve the problem, but he's going to do so through the discipline of a more wicked nation, Babylon, that will come upon Judah and exile them. And so last week we looked at the question of why. Remember, why God? Why are you allowing injustice among my people? Or as Habakkuk put it, how long, O Lord? To responding to, to God's initial answer with this. Now this is, what, this is the voice we have now. When he hears God's response, Habakkuk in a sense kind of says, really, that's the plan? You guys been there before? Really, God? That's the plan you have. In summary, Habakkuk's immediate life experience, okay, that's going to be important this morning, his immediate experience with with life in this moment does not equate in his his knowledge and his heart what he knows about God. We call this the character of God. What's been made known about God through redemptive history. God had saved the people, Israel, out of enslavement and given them a, a, a land. So what... Habakkuk knows about the redemptive history of God, and then also his scriptural understanding, what could be learned about God from Scripture. It doesn't equate with the present experience that that Habakkuk is going through, and that brings us to our main idea. Our main idea for this passage is this. Our, Our specific experience really does not change the eternal character of God. 
Our specific experiences really does not change the eternal character of God. One of the most rewarding aspects of preaching through whole books of the Bible is the reality that these ancient spirit-inspired texts, they're timeless. This is timeless. The Bible is is timeless. And, And it's incredibly relevant to each and every generation. Yes, we must acknowledge that Habakkuk is indeed writing to a specific people in a specific time for a specific situation, but the teaching and the principles that we can draw from this prophecy are timeless even to us in this present day and age. You see, in in modern thinking, in modern thought, our culture in particular, the Western culture, have moved primarily from this, from objective sources of truth towards subjective sources of truth. What do I mean by that? I mean that our society has moved from something that's objective and unchangeable. What's objective? It's, I would assert that it's the truth of the Word of God that's been revealed to, through, to human authors through the power of the Spirit that's been written down that is our, our guide for life. It, it's objective. It doesn't come from me. It came from God. Now our culture has moved towards subjective sources of truth. What are those? They're, they're what I assert is truth. And my truth is my truth. You've probably heard this phrase. And your truth is your truth. And generally, those, those subjective truths that, that we come to within our culture are based off of a few things. Our experiences in life and our feelings. And so we've, we've moved from objective sources of truth towards subjective sources of truth. And I would say that that's, that's an error. That's wrong. The word experience dominates what we as a society view as true and right. My immediate experience, I assert in Scripture, upholds that that this is an incorrect approach to determining right and wrong. For the Bible itself teaches in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart, what we have inside of us, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And then this rhetorical question is presented, who can understand it? Habakkuk here it is a model for us with his wrestling with the very character of God as revealed through Holy Scripture and redemptive history. We, we sense the re- this wrestling as he thinks upon the discipline that he found out about in God's plan last week that will come to Judah, that is the southern kingdom, at the hands of a seemingly more wicked nation, Babylon. So we pick up the story in verse 14. We'll go to verse or to chapter two, verse one. Now, in this section, Habakkuk is talking about Babylon and what they are going to do. He uses an illustration like a fisherman drawing up fish. It says this You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he drags them out with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, Hear this, this is what the Babylonians do. He sacrifices to God. No, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's what Babylon was doing. I will take my stand. Now this is Habakkuk's attitude. When he presents this scenario to God, 
Then he says, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post. I'm going to station myself on the tower, and I'm going to look out to see what he, that is God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The description here we see in this, in this section of Scripture turns to uh, the Babylonians and their wickedness. They are, they're like fishermen who take from the sea, drag across the water, gathering up nations like fish that are captured in the net. Do you guys remember, uh, like when my kids were, were smaller, one of our favorite Disney movies to watch was Finding Nemo. Who's watched Finding Nemo? Okay, towards the end of Finding Nemo, he's out swimming in the ocean, and this big boat comes through with the dragnet and starts dragging and capturing up the fish. You guys remember the scene? And Nemo's up in there. And what is going on in that moment when that dragnet comes up? It's absolute chaos, isn't it? The fish are freaking out. They don't know if they just work together and swim back down. That's what Nemo tells them to do, to swim back down. What do they do? They break the net, and they're free. Okay, but in this, we get this picture of, before Nemo's instruction, this picture of Babylon going through with their dragnet and just pulling up the nations. The earth is absolutely chaotic. This wicked nation is just mercilessly killing nation after nation after nation and taking them in. It's a chaotic scene. And they worship not the Lord in heaven, but they worship the very nets and tools and instruments that they use to build their wealth and feed their bellies. They are an idolatrous nation. They are wicked. They have no mercy on their fellow man. These are wicked, wicked people. Habakkuk's experience leads way to seeking to understand how God's character allows this to go on. That's the right approach. We don't discard God's character, but we press in when circumstances and experiences in life don't make sense. We press into the Word of God. We seek after the Lord, trying to understand, trying to reconcile. God, how can you in your, in your perfect character and your attributes allow these things to go on? Notice the action of Habakkuk. Does he run away? No. He takes his stand in his watchtower and he watches and he waits for the Lord. He asks a question and then waits upon the Lord. Fast forward now to our day and age. Many people, particularly in, in America, in the West, who grew up churched, right? Their family went to church. They grew up churched, are doing the very opposite of what Habakkuk. Habakkuk questioned God and then is waiting upon the Lord to answer. His experience isn't lining up with the character that he knows that God has. So he's waiting upon the Lord to answer. Unfortunately, many, many churched people in our culture take their negative experiences and they project that onto God and then they run from the church. They run from the Lord. They allow their immediate experiences to push them into a disbelieving disposition towards God. Instead of doing what Habakkuk does here, seeking to understand and then being patient and waiting upon the Lord to answer. It's become known, we're, we're known as evangelical Christians. That's, that's our group. There is a, a, a movement though of People that are de-churching that call themselves this, ex-evangelical. Have you heard that term? They call themselves ex-evangelical. They've rejected the church. They're beginning to move away from a position of faith to skepticism. 
because their, li- their immediate life experience doesn't line up with what they found in Scripture. And so instead of waiting upon the Lord, they're running from the Lord. Another way that, that people describe this, maybe you've heard this term, they call it deconstructing their faith. Call it deconstruction. But what we learn from Habakkuk is this, is that our specific circumstances, they really do not change the eternal character of God. I can't take what I'm going through right now in this very moment and project that as God has changed. And that brings us to our first point. God really is unchanging. God really is unchanging. Habakkuk's specific experience brings about his questioning of God. It says this in verses 12 to 13. Listen to these attributes, these characteristics of God. Okay, Habakkuk presents this question first. Are you not from everlasting? That's an attribute of God that he's eternal. Oh Lord, my God, my, here's another one. Holy one. God is holy. We shall not die. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, here's another one. O rock, right? Firm foundation, unchanging, immovable, have established them for reproof. You who are of, here's another one, purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk brings up four of God's attributes within his response, right? Everlasting, holy, rock or firm foundation, or immovable, unchanging, and purity. How then do we reconcile these characteristics of God with our present experience? Now I think if if we look at this immediate situation, there's validity to Habakkuk's complaint, right? God, you're going to send this wicked nation to discipline us? Really? Like, that's the plan, right? That's the question this morning. Really? The question is this. We see this. God's going to use the Babylonians to discipline his people. We know that from history, that that happened. The question then brings our eyes upon this southern kingdom, the people of Judah. So I ask this question. Does Judah, according to Scripture, have an impeccable record of holiness? No. Have they upheld the law of God? Perfectly. No. Have they treated each other well? No. They've also sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which brings us to another argument that oftentimes we offer up in our lives. We use our experiences or or circumstances when they become difficult. We say this, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm not as bad as that guy. Or I'm not as sinful as this person or this group. That's kind of the heart of the argument that Habakkuk is making. Habakkuk's complaint then is based on too low a view of the sin of Judah, his own people, and also too low a view of of the love of God. We must be mindful of our own sin and shortcomings. We have to, family, we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about our own sin. And we have to own our sin. We have to own our shortcomings. And how the love of God 
does this. It corrects us through discipline. And that's not a fun process, is it? Like I remember growing up when my mom said these words, you just wait until your dad gets home. Oh, that's not going to be a good night. That's not going to be fun. But God's love is so expansive. It's so good. It's so perfect. His promises go beyond those immediate circumstances or experiences to discipline us in those moments for our good, to grow our faith. You see, this is what happened, getting back into the story. God will indeed drive Judah out from the land that He promised them. They will be conquered by Babylon. They will be exiled for decades. But this trial is for the good of the people to refine and purify them, to truly prove that God is. He's these things, right? These are the attributes that Habakkuk is questioning. To truly prove that God is everlasting, that He's eternal. And that His promises are everlasting. That's good news to us. That God is holy. And because He is holy, He must deal with sin. All sin. And God is the rock. The firm, unchanging foundation. Right? You try to pick up a big boulder. Can you move it? No. Rocks don't change much. You walk outside and look at a rock and it's going to be the same. They are constant and immovable. God does not change. And in His sovereignty, He can use people more wicked than His elect to discipline and purify. The Bible is clear in this. The Bible affirms the unchangeableness of God. It says this in Malachi 3.6. Hear this. For I, the Lord, do not change. What does that mean? God doesn't change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Teaching of Scripture is clear. And that actually brings us to our second point. The the Word of God really is clear. The Word of God really is clear. Can we understand the Bible? Yes. Yes, we can. It's not written in a way to be obscure, The redemptive plan of God, as revealed in Scripture, is very clear. Moreover, not only the redemptive plan of God, but the warning of God that will happen to those who fail to take notice of its warnings is also clear. Those things are clear in Scripture. And the Lord instructs Habakkuk in this way, in in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, And the Lord answered me, hear this, write the vision, notice the way he says this, Make it plain on tablets, right? Make it clear so he may run who reads it. God's instruction to Habakkuk here is, make what I say clear. Make it plain. Don't make it troublesome. Just make what I am saying known. Don't muddy the water. Make it clear so that he may run from danger who reads it. Again, Habakkuk's immediate experience has created tension in what he knows to be true of God's very character He models our normal reaction, like, really, God, that's what you're doing? When we get stuck in the immediate and fail to see all that God has done to warn up, leading up to this moment. God has already, this isn't the first warning to God's people, is it? Let's think through this a little bit. This Judah, the southern kingdom, has already 
had the, the truth, the warning made plain to them even before God tells Habakkuk to write it on tablets and make it plain. How do we know that? Let's, let's look at Scripture. The first way we know that is, is that there's warnings in the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They contain warnings kind of summarize in this way. If God's ways are not followed, this will happen. Okay. We just spent a long time on Wednesday evenings, kind of dragging ourselves through the book of Deuteronomy. Anybody join us with that? (laughs) We're thankful that it's over and that we've moved on to the New Testament and the book of Hebrews, but it really opened up your mind to see all of the warnings that God gave to his people, especially in Deuteronomy. So they've been warned from from the earliest of writings in Scripture. Then we have within Scripture historical writings. Joshua and Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, where we see in history documented what happened to God's people when they didn't obey the law of God. Those are warnings, right? Learn from your past mistakes. Like when I was growing up, I'm the youngest of, of three boys, my two older brothers, when I saw them get a whooping for something, at mental note, don't do that, right? That's what the historical writings were for the people of God. Do this, don't do that. Here's another way that they were warned. Uh, the prophets warned them. Here's another way that the, the southern kingdom in particular was warned. They had their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom. You see the kingdom had split at this point, a northern kingdom southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom saw this happen. Don't you think that that's another warning to God's people? Do you see what the Lord allowed to happen up here? And after all of that, the prophets then warned again. Do you think that God's people have been warned enough? Right? It's like, I'm I'm kind of on the, uh, the mama illustrations today. It's like, when you're, a ba- when you're a kid and, and the stove's on, mama's cooking some chili, right? We're getting into chili season, thank goodness. Good chili, no noodles. Noodles don't belong in chili. Don't send me an email on that, it's true. Little kid, walk it, bolt, the, the, the pot of chili's on the stove, the fire's cooking it. What, what do the little kids want to do? I want to touch the hot thing. What does mom say? Don't touch it. Turns her back. Kid starts walking. To, don't touch it. Then, then what, what happens to the warning, right? That's That too. Couple more times, and then the kid goes for it, and it's like, all right, you got it. That's, that's what we see here. Warning, warning, warning. Okay. If you want to get burned, there you go. Have at it. God has made it plain. And yet violence and iniquity, destruction and strife, perversion of God's law dominate the southern kingdom at this time. You can't blame God because He's warned them. He's made it plain and clear. If you do not heed His instruction of what will come to pass, the Word of God is very clear. So much so that it describes uh, this revelation of God to Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. I love the way it says this. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Hear this. 
as a man speaks to his friend, right? Do you talk to your friend in riddles or ways that they don't understand? No. You make it clear. I want you to know what I'm saying. And Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, keeps asking the Pharisees. I didn't even tag any scriptures in this because he says it like 10 different times. He keeps asking this question to the Pharisees rhetorically. He says, have you not read? Have you not read my clear instruction, the clear scriptures? Read the clear teaching of Scripture. Keep and obey the commands of the Lord. Point number three. This one's a tough one. God really does call us to these things, patience and long-suffering. Who loves to go through a season of long-suffering? No thank you, right? I'm a, I'm a terrible uh, like airport waiting guy, You know, waiting for the plane in the airport because... You know, for some reason, the airlines have all these different groups that gets aboard the plane, and I'm always in the last group. I am the least of these when it comes to boarding airplanes. So you have the A group. They probably first-class tickets, paid a lot of money. B group, C group, D group, E group. I'm in, like, the Z group, right? But when they start boarding that first group, even though it's going to be 25 minutes, it's like, okay, let's pack up the bags, let's get going. And I'm standing behind that person who's in that first group just breathing down their neck. Oh, excuse me, here, yeah, you go first. I'm all the way in the Z group. I don't know why I'm standing here for 25 minutes. I'm not patient. Anybody else do that? Just me? Okay, Sharon's with me, thank you. There's an old churchy joke about patience, right? Don't, don't pray for patience because it's the one prayer request that we are sure God will give you. He's going to give you patience. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. God's saying, hey, it's coming. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. God's saying, I'm telling you the truth. If it seems slow, here's the word, wait for it. Man, I hate waiting. After talking about opening Christmas presents last week, Nate, Our discipleship director came in my office on Monday and he said, I have a present for you tomorrow. Not cool. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, now God is going to speak of the Babylonians. His soul is puffed up. So that's aimed at the Babylonians. It's not upright within him. And then we have our key, our beautiful verse. But what? The righteous shall live by what? His faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. There's our verse, right? When we respond to our immediate experiences with, with really? Remember where Habakkuk is. Where's Habakkuk? It said just before this in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand. I'm at my watchtower. What's he saying? Lord, I'm waiting upon you to answer. I'm waiting upon you to move. I'm not running away. I'm not deconstructing my faith. I'm not an ex-evangelical. I'm waiting on you, Lord. It's the test of faith. It's the question that each and every one of us have when our specific life experience doesn't measure up with what we think the character of God is through Scripture. Are you just going to run away when your immediate experience doesn't line up with the character of God? Or are you going to do what Habakkuk does? Are you going to communicate to God what's going on in your heart and your head? And are you going to, this is the important step. Are you going to wait on Him 
patiently to reveal the good He will bring about in your particular circumstance. Here's the truth. We've seen this play out in history. God will deal with the wicked, won't He? Anybody taking a trip to the Babylonian Empire lately? It doesn't exist. Why? Because God has dealt with the wicked. How about Rome? There's a city with ruins and evidence of a once great empire. Where is it? It's gone. How about Nazi Germany? God deals with the wicked. None of these wicked nations exist anymore, and there's new ones that are rising up that God is going to deal with. He's going to handle it. So, as we wait on the Lord, as we exercise patience and, and long-suffering, what do we do? You're like, yeah, this, that's neat, but what do I do in the meantime? Scripture teaches us. We remember the words and the assurance of the Bible. We remember His clear words. A beautiful psalm, Psalm 46, 1-7, it says this. Hear these words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You hear that promise? God is with you in trouble. Therefore, because of that, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, through, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What is it saying? Though the world's falling apart, the Lord is with you. It goes on. It gives us this beautiful picture. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. That's God. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Did you hear that, family? Hear this. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's what the clear teaching of the Word of God says. And we see now, so that's Old Testament, we see now in light of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this beautiful promise in Romans 8, 37 to 39. Let me, I'm going to talk a little bit about Romans 8 real quick. The, the beginning part of Romans 8 is talking about how difficult life is on the earth. It's saying that, that the earth is groaning and moaning as in pains like childbirth, waiting upon the Lord to return. And then we see these, this beautiful promise towards the end of Romans 8, 37 to 39. It says this, for those who are in Christ, this is a promise to us It says, no, in all these things, hear this phrase, we are what? More than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, hear this, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, this is a promise, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know why? Because Jesus came in the flesh and He lived perfectly in our place and He went to the cross of shame and He absorbed the full wrath of the Father. He bore the weight of our sins and He shed His blood. Scripture tells us that when He gave up His life, when He gave up His Spirit, the the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was shredded. It was ripped in two from top to bottom, making the way uh, to God through faith in that work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And you want to know what? 
Jesus didn't stay dead. How can we have confidence in what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 37 and 39? How can we wait patiently on that watchtower waiting for God uh, when the world is falling apart? Because Jesus is alive, family. Because he raised from the dead. It's the most important thing that has ever happened in history. And because of that, we can wait patiently on the Lord. We can trust his every word. We can be like Habakkuk where we can question, but we wait. We don't need to deconstruct. We don't need to run away from the church. We wait upon the Lord and we trust his sure promises because his son is alive. Amen.